Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Reflections by Spectacles. Today we're going to be talking about an insight that Harry wrote about the new defensive pact between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States involving Australia's acquisition of a number of nuclear-powered submarines and the snubbing of the French who were also poised to sell Australia some diesel-powered subs. Yeah, so we've sort of, you know, brainstormed some ideas for this article before I sat down to write it. And I think, you know, some disagreements emerged between us, although I would say, right, sort of different differences of, of degree, not of kind. Maybe if you've gotten any sense of my writing or of maybe some of Philip's writing on, on the more foreign policy oriented pieces, Philip might be a bit more hawkish than I am, not, not, not terribly so. And actually, I think we both are you know, dissatisfied with sort of maybe a, a quasi-militarist status quo in terms of U.S. foreign policy, but maybe I'm a bit more of a dove. Actually, I think the central sort of area of tension maybe that emerged between us, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Philip, is I said, you know, like basically what's happening here, potentially, potential aspect of what's happening here is that a security dilemma, basically the idea that two countries or two powers that are that are rivalrous might enter into an arms race. One side develops, you know, one type of weapon and in response, another side, you know, militarizes its border and then and it's a back and forth and until because, war breaks out. Yeah, because they're each building their military capacity, then the other responds and then they each build their military capacity up more and then the risk of war gets higher. Exactly. Higher. And my sense just reading this initially or reading about this deal initially was like well really what the united states is doing is if not instigating the beginning of a security dilemma and i actually think you know that's not what's happening here is sort of fulfilling the prophecy of the security dilemma consciously i'm not saying like okay we're going to start a security dilemma but but they are they are they are fulfilling the what the theory of the security dilemma predicts right. um, by giving australia these nuclear-powered submarines. And, you know, obviously, you're, you're, we're not thinking of it in terms of, you know, two nations on borders with each other fighting each other because, obviously, conflict is global now. So it's not about two countries. It's about, you know, two two powers, the United States and China and Australia, I think, really is a, a, a player in this conflict, obviously, and it has its own security interests. But really, I think what's going on here is the United States sees an advantage in giving this cutting-edge technology, right, and sharing these sharing secrets about about nuclear technology which is um not common at all it's 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 unusual in world affairs and and to to be super clear here we say it in the article and we said it in the intro but these are nuclear powered submarines yes there are such things as nuclear armed submarines the u.s does have a lot of them right and they're critical in you know maintaining a second strike capability in case nuclear war breaks out but that's not what we're talking right. about here just to be clear so australia is does not possess nuclear weapons and they are committed to not possessing nuclear weapons but they will have these nuclear powered submarines right which the, will be armed with conven- conventional missiles basically right so to get back to the point my concern on reading this was thinking well Sure, it helps shore up some security against China in the region. China has been increasingly aggressive. We know that. But I'm thinking, okay, well, we're just getting closer and closer to a war with China, which from my standpoint is is very undesirable. I think we agree on that. Yeah, for sure. Very undesirable. And I think, I don't know, maybe Philip, you want to, that was my reaction. You want to explain yours? Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, okay, you can point at the US and say it's sort of fulfilling that dark prophecy of a security dilemma. 
And I think there's a reasonable criticism to be made that when you begin to fill, fulfill the dark prophecy of the security dilemma, it contributes to heightened tensions and a heightened possibility of war. That's yeah. for sure. I mean, do I think that, do I also think that in the age of nuclear weapons that the outbreak of war gets more complicated than security dilemmas may have more easily predicted in the past? Yeah, I do. But, and we saw that in the Cold War. Right. Huge security dilemma for like three decades. And, you know, we had some proxy wars and things like this, but war never broke out despite the fact Between that there the was Between two major powers. Yeah, right. but despite the fact that there was an arms race unlike anything the world had ever seen. And yep. unlike anything we're seeing today, right. much greater scale than what we're seeing today. Yes. In, in the amount of destruction it could cause to the world and to humanity. But, so I think that's a fair criticism to say that the U.S. is sort of going into this, in, into this, maybe you could call it a trap sort of situation. Mm -hmm. But I guess my perspective is that the reason the security dilemma is true and has been true for so much of human history is because it's in a way perfectly rational behavior for a state to engage in it. If you see another power building up its arms, because in my opinion, you know, China has made it clear. And the guy we interviewed, Harry interviewed, Bill Hayton, who's an associate fellow with the Asia Pacific program at the UK-based foreign policy think tank, Chatham House, who was very helpful to us, Very had some very smart things to say. We're really mm -hmm. thankful to him for talking to us. But one thing that he said is, you know, China is adding tonnage to its naval power, to its navy, you know, equal to all of Europe's navies combined every year. Right. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's the thing. And, by, and so just and, by and, quickly by tonnage, China actually has more ships in its Navy than the United States does now. It does not equal the U.S. by tonnage. And the U.S. ships are still larger, just right. so everyone knows. But, but so the point there is China's the one that's instigated this arms race. And, you know, you could say critically that China hasn't instigated it because the U.S. has dominated the world's seas and China isn't really instigating. It's merely asserting itself, but from the U S or from an American's perspective, you know, it's advantageous to be in charge of the seas. Right. right? And so it's a threat to your security when someone starts to build up their Navy. And so I right. think it's, I think it's a perfectly rational response from the American perspective, from the U S perspective to say, okay, we'll, we'll match you. Let's do this. Yeah. And is that terribly scary? And do I, yes, do I want to go to war with China? No. Would I like to avoid it? Certainly. But is it, I think, a totally rational way for a state to behave? Yeah. And I think that's why the security dilemma has proven such a, such a sage sort of yeah. diagnos diagnosis of the way that foreign policy and arms races work. Sure. I mean, I think that makes sense. I guess in, uh, my, cri my critique is the critique which you acknowledge, right? Which is that the U.S. conceives of its domain as being the world it yeah. conceives of its rightful areas which it has the authority moral authority and political authority to police as basically everything right up to china's shores so i think that 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 you know you want in some in some respects right that needs to be examined sort of structurally right not just saying you know what has china done in the past 20 years but how has the united states conceived of its position in the world since 1945 and what how does that help explain what we're seeing today? And if you are 
me and you think and and philip as well right if we, if we don't want there to be a war with china which i think any reasonable person does not i think it's i think you want to sort of interrogate those sort of underlying structural factors of the united states global hegemony how, yeah how has u.s policy contributed to this kind of situation right and so is, yeah, the ultimately the, the the fact of the matter is I don't think either side is blameless. Right. I think ultimately, and I think we we basically agree on that, is that China has, you know, made certain rational decisions in its own foreign policy. You know, it yeah. wants to have more influence on global trade. And so it's sort of constrained by the United States control of what we call the first island chain, which is a series of island nations that sort of ring around the Chinese coast. It includes Taiwan, Philippines, Indonesia. I'm not sure of the geography. Anyway, I think that that, right, that, so that in that sense, its foreign policy is, is, is rational. Although I think ultimately, if you're talking about yeah sort of ideationally and like i think you know i'm on team usa and team australia and Um, i i think that's part of the thing that it comes down to is yeah okay if you want to sit here and you want to criticize the way that the u.s has conceived of global trade relations and global naval dominance you can do that and i think that there's a lot of reasonable criticisms and reasonable debate to be had about the way that the u.s approaches that that area But I think that this is, this situation provides an example of where you get into difficult waters with that debate is that it's one thing to be critical of American policy. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to be permissive of a competing regime asserting its policy. Right. Because look, China, Chinese growing dominance in its region and this in, in, in its regional waters is not simply a liberation from the U.S. Right. It's not that simple. No, it's not. It's now coming under another regime's control. Okay. So you've got a choice between two. Which do you think is better? And that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Right? And I think that people, I think people who are reasonably critical of U.S. approach to this policy area get caught up in that criticism and forget that in this situation, we're not just seeing a negation of U.S. power. We're seeing a positive gain of power for another regime, which itself has a distinct vision for how to approach policy in that area, too. Right. And so you've got to you got to be aware of that. And it's not you know, I think I've made my point clear, but. Well, no, I think that's I mean, I think that that sort of lays out nicely the the foundations of the case for the nuclear submarine deal right i mean it it is in that sense you know it's good that a democracy has the ability to you know more adequately defend itself from chinese encroachments i don't think china is like going to invade australia anytime in the near future but there can be territorial disputes and and i i would say that this is maybe an example of the u.s doing better in a regard that it's frequently criticized, which is a unilateral approach to these matters. And here's the US cooperating with at least, you know, Australia, a country in the region by providing it resources to, you know, protect itself. And it's a more multilateral approach. Now, I think something that you highlight in the article that's important is that it's limited to Australia. And yes, we have, you know, previously standing relationships, which are still very strong with Japan and South Korea, for example, which are non-Anglophone countries. Right. But you raise this criticism that, you know, it is not as multilateral in a sense as it could be. Right. We're not working with a bunch of non-Anglophone Southeast Asian countries, which potentially we could be working with. Mm -hmm. I think 
one thing that Hayton pointed to in the phone call was the fact that the people, the non-Anglophone Southeast Asian nations that we have worked with in the past, Thailand and uh, Philippines, have not been super reliable as of late. Right. You know, in Thailand, we've got a coup recently and the growing power of its of, of a monarchy which has increasingly aligned itself with China rather than the United States. Mm-hmm. And in the Philippines, you've got some rising anti-democratic political agitation sure. and, and powers and things like this. And so from a U.S. perspective, I think it's fair to criticize the U.S. isn't being as multilateral as it could be. And I think mm-hmm. multilateralism is a good thing for democratic promotion around the world. But I think it's a reasonable response to say, we have tried that, and those countries haven't been as reliable as of late. And so turning to Australia is not a sign of sort of Anglophone inwardness or isolationism, Mm -hmm. but of simply turning to a democratic regime, which has been a more reliable partner in the past and looks to be a more reliable partner in the future for these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I think that is, that is an important point. I think, you know, in the, when we're thinking about things in the the short term, for example, that makes sense. I also think that again, I, you know, I take this view, I think it goes back. If we look at our relationship with those countries, which are in the global South and sort of the fundamentally extractive relationship that the Western powers have had with them for so long, I mean, I think that there's probably something to be said, and I'm really not an expert in the region, but my intuition is that, and maybe this is just a moral intuition, uh, my intuition is that if we engage in relationships that give more back to those countries, to the people yeah. of those countries, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean and, and, you know, there is, you know, there's, right, we can have trade deals with them and stuff like that, but, you know, we should be critical in terms of who's actually reaping the benefits of those exchanges. And yeah. it's mixed, right? I mean, I think that you there's a very strong case. I'm, you know, in favor of, of of global free trade. You're in favor of global free trade. But there is, you know, there's there's differences in the quality of those trade agreements Definitely. in terms of who gets the benefits. Definitely. And I think that what we have on offer, you know, is not necessarily enough to, whereas China's willing to just give development money Two leaders, basically, right? Two leaders who may or may not be democratic to, you know, do their preferred projects, and they're not as concerned, I think, about like local corruption. That works for those leaders, and that can help draw them into the into the Chinese alliances and enter into the Chinese sphere of influence per se. Yeah, I think that relationships that are beneficial to the people of those countries that give back, that give, you know, that give the U.S. you know rooted legitimacy in those countries, that democratic legitimacy, not just the legitimacy of whoever has a monopoly on violence in the country. That is something that I think would be beneficial. Well, and I think that this is, I think that's a fair criticism to be to be made. Um, I think this goes back to one of the great difficulties we highlighted and I think our first article on Afghanistan, mm-hmm. or our second article on Afghanistan, wherein, Harry, you wrote criticizing basically the MO of nation building that we saw in Afghanistan, yeah. which was this model of basically providing cash and subsidies and NGO money to build out infrastructure and other things in a country mm-hmm. um, that undermined the development of an accountable and effective democratic government. Right. And if you're interested in that topic and you haven't read the article, it's a really good article. Harry does a good job breaking down the issue. We'll link it in the show notes. But China is happy to provide cash to whatever regime Mm -hmm. to buy influence there. Mm -hmm. Because as we saw in Afghanistan, money does buy influence. Yes. But 
money does not as easily build democracy because it buys influence. Right. Right. That's the point about that you highlighted in Afghanistan. It's because we gave them lots of money, they became more accountable and interested in what the US or the UK wanted than what the Afghan electorate wanted, because mm -hmm. that's where the cash cow was. Yeah. So it's it's I think it's a, a fair criticism to say that the United States needs to be more reciprocal mm -hmm. in its relationships. But I think pointing to China sort of is it do, doesn't really provide a democratic way forward no, for U.S. It definitely foreign does policy. Not. It really does not because we can't just if we just go into Thailand and we give them really great trade deals that keep us keep them on our side and fund their regime. Well, what kind of regime are we funding? Right? Is it something that we want to fund and be a, a, a patron of? And mm -hmm. I think that's the difficult thing that a democratic regime like the U.S. has to deal with in foreign policy that right. China doesn't. Yes, this is true. Right. China has shown time and time again, it doesn't really care that much about the regime type through the Belt and Road Initiative. It's not of course all that not. concerned. I mean, it'll, it'll give money to democracies. It'll give money to quasi-democracies. It'll give money to dictatorships. They're not as interested in that. And as we, long as it buys influence. And, and you can also say, well, we aren't either because like, look at Saudi Arabia, blah, blah, blah. Sure. And, and, and right, sure. that hypocrisy is definitely, definitely there. But because domestic politics matters in the United States, you know, I mean, domestic politics matters in China. I don't want to say that it doesn't, but because domestic politics is obviously because of the democratic nature of the country is fundamentally front and center. Democrats at home tend not to be thrilled by Democrats. Yeah. I don't mean the party. I mean, Dem people who believe in democracy at home tend not to be thrilled when they know about the U.S. funneling money and, to, you know, two-bit dictatorships. Yeah. And of course, there are, you know, instances in which we haven't lived up to that. That's right. going to be, you know, impossible to not have those. But the point is that it's an actual it is a, a possible stumbling block right. in America, right. whereas it isn't in China. Yeah. Which is all a way of saying challenges abound, you know? I mean, it's, yeah. this is not something that is easily worked through, especially because the prospect of war does loom. Oh. And so these short-term security things become important. Oh. And so, you know, we didn't talk that much about the French in this reflection, but I mean, they're, you know, whatever the French do what the French want to do. But for, the, for if you're an Australian right now, you're probably thinking, well, I would tend to rather have these much more technologically efficient and new, um, you know, military tools at our disposal and our security, because there is, I mean, there is, there is a threat to the country China of Australia. Is scary. Right. And so given all that, it makes sense. It is probably a pretty sensible policy from the standpoint of security. So I don't necessarily, I don't, my feeling on it is somewhat amb ambivalent leaning pro. I think that there are just things that are still missing and things that I don't necessarily expect the United States is going to take on with quite the same vigor, right, in terms of its relationship with Southeast Asian countries. I mean, clearly the Biden administration has been trying. They've had, you know, two delegations to Southeast Asia, one led by Lloyd Austin, the De Secretary of Defense, and one led by Kamala Harris, the Vice President. So they care, but... I guess we're not quite seeing the same sort of like material relationship develop, which I think, you know, the United States should probably be, if they're not trying really hard already, I think they should be trying hard on that because yeah. I think that that is going to be crucial. If there is not going to be war, it's going to be because the nations of that region reject the idea of war being good on either side. And I think only through, as I pointed out at the end of this article, actually Philip wrote that last, that last paragraph, through diplomacy, through trade does can we, I think, really realize a situation in which war does not need to happen? Right. Um, and so, this, you know, the security stuff, 
good, I guess, but I think it it needs to it needs to be there needs to be a deeper deeper framework, a deeper foundation. Than the just, world is a lot more complicated than it once was. Sure, and simply having a bigger stick than the other guy isn't the solution it once was to right. our problems. Yeah, exactly. That's all for today. If you enjoyed, consider subscribing to Spectacles in Conversation for more discussions like this between the editors from Reflections and Bird's Eye. If you'd like to hear each new article of focus and insight read aloud, follow the link in the show notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to read or make a comment on the article we just discussed, there's also a link in the show notes for that, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.